0: Welcome back Bible readers. This is the Ruta podcast and this is week number 46. 46. Wow. Just a few more weeks until we hit week 52 to be the end of the podcast for the year. We've come so far. I hope that you've been staying with us and being faithful to read your scriptures each and every day and at the end of the year you can say that you began in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and read all the way through the last verse of Revelation. Now this week We're going to be working on John 15 through Acts chapter 9. Now, I'm not going to mince words early on here. I'm just going to tell you that it's going to be a longer podcast than normal. I've got a lot to cover, and I've got a lot to say. So buckle up, and we're going to get started in John chapter 15. Now, as we resume our narrative in John, Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for his soon coming departure. And so in chapter 15, he instructs them on the importance of abiding in him, their relationships with him, their relationships with one another, and their relationships with the world. All of those relationships must produce fruit, and their relationship with the Father is represented with the metaphor of the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine, and the disciples are the branches, and the branches do anything, cannot do anything without the vine. Their relationship with one another should be characterized by love. In fact, five character traits of loving one another are outlined in verses 13 through 18. 16 of this chapter. Maybe you can see if you can find those. But the last relationship is one that we are to have with the world. Christ commissioned his disciples to be witnesses to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in chapter 16, Jesus proceeds to review some of the things he's just told his disciples, but now gives them a little more information, especially in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You find through John and much of Jesus' teaching that his method was not to give thorough explanations of one subject at a time. It was rather to introduce several different subjects initially and then return to them and give a little more information on each of them as time progressed. So now Jesus warns the disciples of the religious opposition that was yet to come. He was preparing them for what lies ahead. The disciples were full of grief because they didn't realize how good it would be when the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. Really, it was to the disciples' advantage that Jesus should leave them. You know, Some Christians wish that they could live during the days of Jesus on earth and see all his work firsthand. However, here Jesus clearly affirmed that believers would be better off after the Spirit's coming than before. Now Christ predicted in verse 13 of chapter 16, that the Holy Spirit's ministry would include spiritual guidance, guidance, excuse me. The Spirit does not operate um, independently from the Father and the Son. He works in concert with them. And the work of the Spirit is to glorify the Son as the Father intends him to do so. Now, the last half of chapter 16, Jesus acknowledges that there will be sorrow at his death and his departure, but afterwards there will be joy and happiness. He likened his coming suffering and death and resurrection to a woman who gives birth, but the pain of childbirth is quickly forgotten with the life of a newborn baby, just like the grief of the death and suffering of Christ is replaced with joy and happiness at his resurrection. Jesus also said that after his resurrection, he would speak openly to his disciples. Up until that time, he often cloaked his words because many were not ready to receive clear teaching. So Jesus warned his disciples that their level of belief would be challenged and they would be scattered because of the hostile activity that would come shortly. But they were to take heart and be encouraged, for Christ has overcome the world. And we too today need to take heart and be encouraged, for Christ truly has overcome the world. He has won the victory, and that should give us confidence to live faithfully for him. Chapter 17 has often been termed Jesus' high priestly prayer. In the Old Testament, prayers often accompanied important farewell discourses like Jacob in Genesis 49 or Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Here in this prayer, Jesus prayed for himself. It shows us he he does that in the first five verses of chapter 17. The hour of his passion would become the hour of his glory. Jesus prayed that the Father would restore the glory he shared with the Father before the world began, a prayer that affirmed Christ's deity and his preexistence. Jesus also prayed for the disciples in verses 6 to 19, relaying the truth that the Father had given to him. He had faithfully revealed that to the disciples. He prayed for their security and welfare, their protection from Satan. Just as God the Father had sent Jesus into the world, now Jesus is sending his disciples into the world. And then lastly, Jesus prayed for future believers, verses 20 to 26. Jesus prayed for all future believers, um, who would believe through the message of the disciples using the model of his oneness with the Father. Jesus praised for the oneness of all believers. Jesus wanted the unity among believers to be so great and so clear that the world around them would believe Jesus' message. Now chapters 13 through 17 was the farewell discourse in the upper room. Now we move on to chapters 18 through 20, which detail the passion ministry of Christ. And so chapter 18 begins with the arrest of Jesus. And one of the many things you'll notice that is different in John's recounting of the passion events is that John portrayed Jesus as in complete control of his destiny. He is the Son of God and is completely in control. So as the text says in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, Jesus didn't try to hide from those who would arrest him. He went to a place where Judas had been multiple times with the disciples, a place that Judas would have anticipated him to go. Jesus knew why the Roman soldiers had come, and so he steps forward knowing full well that they have come for him. The arresting men fell backwards, surprised that the man that they came out to hunt for was virtually surrendering to them. Jesus asked the disciples that they not be arrested and no sooner than he says that that Peter steps forward and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant Malchus he rebukes Peter saying Peter this is the plan I've told you this I must drink from the cup of suffering that the father has given me now from chapter 18 verses 12 through chapter 19 verse 16 John records 3 of the total six trials of Jesus specifically he includes one trial that the other gospel writers do not include and it's the trial before Annas now There's a detail you need to be aware of as it relates to the high priests. Both Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Annas was the former one whom the Jews still regarded as the legitimate one, since a high priestly appointment was for life according to the Mosaic law. But consequently, it was natural that the Jews regarded Annas as the patriarch and the true high priest, and that he continued to exert considerable influence throughout his lifetime. The other high priest was Caiaphas, and That was Ananias' son-in-law, whom the Romans had placed in office. So the Romans placed Caiaphas in office, but Annas, according to a lot of the Jews, was the true high priest. That's why you had two of them here. That's why they appeared before two different ones. So right before Jesus is interrogated, we're told in the text as well that Peter denies Christ the first time. Since the interrogation by Annas could not produce anything for which the Sanhedrin could condemn or even charge Jesus with, Jesus is sent on to Caiaphas. And then Peter denies Christ a second time and a third time, after which the rooster crows, just as Jesus had predicted. John does not include the details of Caiaphas's trial, only that it ended in the early hours of the morning, after which he was taken to the Roman governor Pilate. John reported more about Jesus' trial before Pilate than any of the other gospel writers. And, and while I'm thinking about this, I have a simple chart that I'll include in the podcast email that shows the six trials of Christ and which gospel writer included the details about which one. That might be helpful to some of you who might be trying to reconstruct all the trials of Jesus during his Passion Week. Now, the Jews present to Pilate the charges that they have against Jesus in chapter 18, verses 28 to 32. Having heard their charges, Pilate goes back inside to interrogate Jesus personally, verses 33 to 38. And the heart of the conversation that Jesus and Pilate have was about truth, verse 38. And Pilate turned away from Jesus' offer to reveal it to him. In Pilate's experience, in governmental service, everyone was deceptive and always had an agenda. The idea that someone would aim his entire life at revealing truth was just simply foolish to Pilate. As Pilate was ready to release Jesus back to them, as was the custom during the Passover, the Jews responded that they wanted Barabbas released instead of Jesus. Now, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, the first part of that chapter is the sentencing of Jesus. As Jesus is beaten and brought before the people, the people demand for his crucifixion because he claimed to be the Son of God. Well, this statement shocks Pilate, and Pilate takes Jesus back inside to question him again. Pilate says to Jesus, don't you understand? I have the power over your life. And then Jesus answers with one of the most well-known statements to Pilate you would have had no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Chapter 19, verse 11. Again, John is showing how Jesus, the Son of God, is in complete control of all the events. Ironic that Pilate was constantly trying to get Jesus released, but Jesus' own people are the ones who wanted him crucified. Now, the account of the crucifixion begins in verse 17 through verse 37 of chapter 19. Jesus' journey to Golgotha outside Jerusalem brings to mind two Old Testament events. Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice of himself in Genesis 22, and the high priest taking the sin offering outside the camp in Leviticus chapter 4. In fact, if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 13, it also tells us that Christ was crucified outside the camp. The Aramaic word for Golgotha means place of the skull, which in Latin... Uh, Latin versions translated as Calvary. That's why we call it Calvary. The script on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, was posted in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic to provide the message for everyone. Against the backdrop of the crowd's opposition, Pilate stood by his statement that Jesus was their King, though he was not fully aware of the significance of the message that he nailed to the cross. Now the final moments of Jesus' earthly life were marked with seven cries from the cross, two of which are recorded in the book of John. I am thirsty, John nineteen twenty-eight, and it is finished, John nineteen thirty. The Jews asked the legs of Jesus and the two others be broken in an attempt to hasten their death so that their bodies could be removed before the Sabbath. Only John recorded the cooperation between Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who Pilate asks—or excuse me—who asked Pilate for Jesus' body and buried it with a mixture of myrrh and aloes in accord with the Jewish customs. Now, chapter 20, everything comes to a climax at the resurrection. John was highly selective in which events he chose to record. John, the disciple who outran Peter, wrote his gospel as an eyewitness to the resurrection. John specifically noted the exact position of the grave cloths and the folded head cloth separate from the linen. John singles out the account of Mary Magdalene. She mistook Jesus for the gardener before he revealed himself to her. Jesus would not allow her to continue clinging, clinging to him since he had already told her that he must ascend to the Father. Now, chapter 19, verses 30, excuse me, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31 was the Sunday evening of the resurrection when Jesus appeared to his disciples behind closed doors. His risen body with the scars conveyed the proof of his death, and his presence confirmed the proof of his resurrection. John also included the account of Thomas here, whose doubts about Jesus were now no longer doubts. Chapter 21 includes the more post-resurrection appearances which would have occurred during the 32-day period between Thomas' confession, chapter 20, verse 28, and Jesus' later ascension in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Seven disciples who saw Jesus are specifically named here. And this is a fitting way, I think, to end the book, as John permits us to see a fallen Peter That is compassionately restored by Jesus. And the final verse of John, as we have mentioned it before, reminds us that the Gospel of John, as well as the other Gospel writers, recorded just the highlights of the ministry and life of Christ. If these writers were to write down everything Jesus said and did, the whole world could not contain the books that could be written about the life and ministry of Christ. What we have in the Gospel writers recounting of the life and ministry of Christ is all that we need to believe. Now, that ends the book of John, and that ends the first section of the New Testament we know as the Gospels. Now, we move on to church history, which is found in the book of Acts. Acts is the inspired sequel to the Gospels as the story of Jesus' resurrection begins to spread like wildfire. Now, a few things about the book of Acts you'll want to note. First, Acts is highly geographical. The gospel moves out from Jerusalem to the larger territories of Judea and Samaria and eventually reaches to the furthest extent of the known world. Second Acts demonstrates the gospel is going to get spread by God's sovereign control and there is nothing that's going to stop it. Remember the words of Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel is like a train and it's getting out and you either get run over or you get on it. Third, Acts forms an important background to the epistles. In fact, many of Paul's epistles were written during the time frame in which the events of the Acts took place, some 30 years. Fourth, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Acts is the second volume that Luke writes to his friend Theophilus to give him an orderly account of Christianity. So Luke would be volume one, Acts would be volume number two. Fifth, Acts marks a transition in God's dealings with man. God was working in the world through the nation of Israel, but now God is focused in working in the world through the church. All right, so let's get to the tat text, excuse me, of Acts chapter 1. And Acts chapter 1 is a bridge between the end of the Gospels and the soon coming start of the church. In chapter 1, we find that the apostles are following Jesus' instructions and waiting in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, because it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that is essential for carrying out the commission that Jesus gave to his apostles. And while they're awaiting the apostles, still have some concerns and questions about the coming kingdom. And so they ask and they continually ask Jesus about the kingdom. Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms that the kingdom will come when the Father says it will. However, for the present time, they have priorities. They have responsibilities. They are to be his witnesses until that time. Acts 1.8 tells us the direction that they will witness. And this verse also forms an outline to the book. Three distinct parts are mentioned in this verse, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. Their gospel witnesses will work slowly outward from Jerusalem until it reaches to the very edges of the known world. By the way, as Jesus is giving these instructions, he is ascending up into heaven. And there is no um, no more complete New Testament passage on the ascension of Christ than in these verses, verses 9 through 11 of Acts chapter 1. And notice carefully that it says that in the same manner in which Jesus left is the same manner in which he will return. This is a great proof text of the visible and earthly return of Christ in the future. Well, While they're waiting for the Spirit, Peter steps forward and addresses the need to select a disciple to replace Judas. Of the one selected, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas, and they choose the replacement by means of casting lots. But remember, casting lots was to show who God had already chosen as the replacement. Also, casting of lots is no longer used in the New Testament after this point. This is because the Holy Spirit has now replaced within the heart of every believer to help them to make those decisions. Now, moving on to chapter 2, we find this is the beginning of the church, and it begins with a bang. The Holy Spirit descends on these apostles on Pentecost, and be careful to pay close attention to the similes, like or as that Luke uses in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Luke is attempting to describe an event that has never happened in history, an event that has a definite supernatural element to it. Wind was an audible indication that the Holy Spirit had come, and fire was the visual indication. It appears that a fire came into the room in the shape of one large flame and then separated itself into smaller flames or tongues of fire that rested on each person. The distribution of the Holy Spirit to every individual believer was remarkably demonstrated here. And as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles began to speak in tongues, other known languages. This miraculous event was was not without its doubters. Some of the onlookers thought the apostles were filled with new wine. And new wine means wine that was just higher in alcoholic content. The irony here is that these onlookers accuse the apostles of being filled with wine rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's Paul later on in Ephesians that says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Peter steps forward and uses a confusing situation to his advantage, and he begins to preach his very first sermon. And the main point of Peter's sermon here is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter does that with five convincing proofs. The miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, that's the first proof. The second is the resurrection of Jesus. The third is that the apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The fourth is the supernatural events at Pentecost. And the fifth proof proof—proof, excuse me was Christ's ascension into heaven. And it seems that Peter was long-winded because the text says that with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. This was Luke's way of saying that the entirety of Peter's sermon was not able to be recorded. Now, verses 42 to 47 of chapter 2 forms a summary section, and it tells us about the growth and the practices of the early church as more and more believers were added to the church daily. Now, in chapter 3, we find that Peter heals a lame man who had been lame for 40 years. And it's this miracle that begins to attract the attention of the crowds and religious leaders. Once again, Peter uses the event to preach a sermon. His second sermon focused on the rejection of Christ by the nation. Their unbelief has caused a delay in God's kingdom program. We must remember that Peter and the apostles were very eager for Jesus to return. And I think in some ways, we need to live with that same eagerness, that same expectancy today. And I think as our world continues to get older and older, we continue to long more and more for the return of Christ. Now, as we move into chapter four of Acts, we find that Peter is not finished with his sermon, but he's interrupted by the religious leaders. Um, In the gospel, it's the Pharisees that caused the most trouble. In the book of Acts, it's the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't like the fact that the apostles were teaching the people. That was their job. And the Sadducees' Sadducees point of fact didn't believe in the resurrection or supernatural events. The Sanhedrin is convened to deal with the issue the next day. And listen to what one author says about the council meeting. And this is a rather lengthy quote. It's about a paragraph, but it is absolutely awesome. Listen to what it says. It is particularly striking that neither on this nor any other subject, subsequent occasion did the authorities take any serious action to disprove the apostle's central affirmation the resurrection of Jesus had it seemed possible to refute them on this point how eagerly would the opportunity have been seized had their refutation on this point been achieved how quickly and completely the new this new movement would have collapsed it is plain that the apostle spoke of a bodily resurrection when they said that Jesus had been raised from the dead and it is equally plain that the authorities Understood them in this sense. The body of Jesus had vanished so completely that all the resources at their command could not produce it. The disappearance of his body, to be sure, was far from proving his resurrection, but the production of his body would have effectively disproved it. Now, the apostles claim that Jesus was alive, excuse me, the apostles claim that Jesus was alive had received public confirmation by the miracle of the healing performed in the name excuse me, in his name. It was, for the Sanhedrin, a rather disturbing situation, end quote. And so that really puts it into perspective. They did not make an attempt to disprove the resurrection. You think about that as you read through the first couple of chapters Now, the Sanhedrin did not want this teaching to spread and tried to intimidate the apostles. But Peter and John responded with a classic statement that they should obey God rather than men. And John and Peter returned to the believers, and an outburst of praise amongst them leads to prayer. And the prayer continues with the apostles asking for more boldness. You'd think they'd ask for protection and safety. But instead, they asked for more boldness and courage. And as a sign of the Lord's approval and answer to their request, two things happened. The place was shook like an earthquake, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So the church thrives from what the world might call defeat, and God's plan continues to go forward through the work of his apostles and disciples. Now, as the church grows, we have some positive examples of believers, like in the life of Barnabas, and some negative example of believers in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, the death of Ananias and Sapphira had probably scared away the crowds that were following the apostles because of their healing abilities, which caused only committed believers to join their ranks. Now, in chapter 5, verse 17, the Sadducees come after the apostles once again. Look closely at verse 28, because the high priests and religious leaders show their true concern. Blame for Christ's death is being placed on their heads. Now, wait a minute. Think about this. Why are the high priests so concerned about being blamed or Why are they so concerned about blame being placed on them for the death of Christ? If they did not believe that he was the Messiah in the first place, then the blame for his death would hold no weight over them. The religious leaders nonetheless wanted to silence this movement, but before they could take any drastic actions, an elder member of the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel stands up and offers some wise counsel. The apostles are set free as a result, and they rejoiced. Yes, it says they rejoiced for having suffered for the name of Jesus, just like Jesus predicted they would. It clarified and proved to them, proved to these apostles that they were doing exactly what Jesus said they were going to do. Now chapter 6 tells us the number of disciples is growing, and when the number of disciples is growing, when the church experiences growth, there's always problems, and they have their first problem. The first problem was related to the fair treatment and help that was given to widows. And this problem is what gave rise to the beginning stages of the office of the deacon. Seven men were chosen to deal with the problem, thereby allowing the apostles to do the main work of preaching and prayer. And the office of the deacon if it's being faithful faithful to the original text should be doing exactly that today in all churches across the globe. At chapter 6, verse 8, the ministry of Stephen, one of the seven deacons chosen, is introduced as the gospel now begins to make its way outside of Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Stephen here is falsely accused, and he is arrested and charged of blasphemy. He is permitted to make a speech against his charges, and this makes up the content of Acts chapter 7. Stephen's speech, which deserves much more treatment than I can give it, at this time, is the longest one recorded in Acts. And it makes three specific points. First, there is a progression and change in God's program. Second, God's blessings are not limited to the land of Israel and the temple. And third, Israel and its past have always had a pattern of opposition towards God. So Stephen lays out Israel's history in a way that will vindicate Christianity. And ultimately, Stephen wanted to show how the Christian message was fully consistent with and in culmination of Old Testament revelation. Now, many of the religious leaders believed that the Christian message to be something different than Judaism, and therefore probably took it as a threat. And this explains why they immediately began to stone Stephen at the end of his speech. And at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, Luke draws our attention to a young man named Saul, who was greatly affected by watching Stephen's stoning. As Saul was making it his mission to persecute the church, the scene shifts to the ministries of Philip in the region of Samaria. Philip was the second of the seven men chosen of deacons back in Acts chapter 6, and Philip has a confrontation with Simon the sorcerer in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 8. There's a contrast here between authentic Christianity and counterfeit Christianity that we would contrast if we had the time to. But when the news reached the apostles that the Samaritans were accepting the message by means of Philip, they were sent to confirm it. And Peter and John laid their hands on these Samaritan believers and they received the Holy Spirit. This is often termed for those that study it, the Samaritan Pentecost. Now the scene shifts back to the ministry of Philip, and this time he's ministering to an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian is trying to make sense of an Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 53 and how it relates to Jesus. Philip helps explain to the man the good news of Jesus from this Old Testament passage in Isaiah. And if Philip used Isaiah 53 to explain Jesus from the Old Testament, then friends, we should be doing the same thing for those that we come into contact with who might not accept the New Testament as authoritative. Philip also baptizes the man and is caught away. Now the narrative takes us back to Saul who had been persecuting the church harshly. And in fact, chapter nine tells us that he is on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians. But this is when he has his Damascus Road experience. Jesus appears to him and asks Saul, why were you persecuting him? Notice the pronoun him, speaking of Jesus. Jesus said it this way to help Saul understand that if you persecute the church, then you are persecuting Jesus. Saul is not the only person who received a vision in this chapter Ananias, uh, Ananias is told by the Lord to go find Saul. Uh, of course, he is reluctant, and I would be too, but follows in obedience, and, and Ananias lays uh, on his hands, and it restores Saul's sight. Now, Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion experience shows up three different times in Acts. Acts chapter 9, right here, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. And if we combine all three of them, we get a more complete... Uh, a. a um, a complete picture of it. But for now, we leave this chapter with a bit of irony because instead of trying to stop the gospel from reaching the world, Paul is chosen by God as a vessel for taking the gospel to the world. All right, we're finished for this week. I told you it was gonna be long and it was long. So we'll stop here for this week. Next week, we'll pick up We'll pick uh, up with Acts chapter 10. We'll go back to Peter. And as you can see that, the scene constantly is going back and forth here in these um Uh, chapters after chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, it kind of goes back and forth between Peter and back to Paul, and back to Peter and back to Paul. Um, But once we come back next week in Acts chapter 10, we'll focus on Peter, and then after Peter, we focus more on the missionaries of Paul as we'll finish out the book of Acts next week. All right, time for me to stop talking. (laughs) Email any questions uh, you have to BibleReading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next time.